HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between 1 and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Lee Ute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. The murder of George Floyd back in May has sparked outrage and a broader national movement against institutional racism that still permeates nearly every aspect of our society today. We've talked a lot about issues of food justice on this show, but not as much about the environmental racism that affects so many low-income communities and people of color. And it's for this reason that I am really excited to welcome Dr. Fatima Sheffi to the show today. Fatima is an environmental justice expert who has dedicated her career to fighting to dismantle environmental racism, as well as educating the next generation on issues of sustainability and the need for equity in this space. She's currently an associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and the Director of Environmental Studies at Spelman College. Fatima, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, so let's just, we'll start with the basics. Uh, quite simply, what is environmental racism and environmental justice? 
Okay. Well, uh, as Dr. Buller, the godfather of environmental justice says, all communities are not created equal. So the environmental justice really expands the meaning of environment to, in, to include where we live, where we work, where we play, where we study, and what, where, and how we eat. And I think when you take that bigger picture of environment, then it's easier to conceptualize what is uh, we're talking about when we talk about environmental justice. Environmental racism, um, as it's defined again by Dr. Bullard, is any policy, practice, or directive that differentiate, differentially affects or disadvantage, doesn't matter whether it is intended or unintended, uh, when it disadvantages individuals, groups, or communities based on their race or color. Uh, and what environmental justice is, is really a movement to, um, to stop environmental racism. And hopefully uh, that is... Yeah. So what, is a, what are some examples of um, environmental racism? How do we see this play out and, and affect, disproportionately affect communities? Okay. First of all, if you look at the movement that uh, we call environmental justice movement to combat environmental race, uh, racism, it is really the merging of three movements, environmental movement, economic social justice movements, and the civil rights movement. And environmental uh, justice encompasses all of those areas. And if you look at the uh, what we, if if I uh, go back to what we call now today environmental justice movement, uh, we can. There are different start points that people use. Uh, some go back to the uh, W. E. B. Du Bois study in Philadelphia. The book. Philadelphia Negro, that was the study that was commissioned by the University of Pennsylvania. And what happened is that uh, he looked at the um, living um, condition and uh, used the statistic and compare housing and then health of white community and black community. And one of the uh, conclusion that he had was that we must really eliminate as much as possible the problem that would make a difference in health among people based on uh, these criteria. But the modern um, environmental justice movement can uh, some again go back to the Dr. Martin Luther King's visit to Memphis, Tennessee, because in um, in February, the, the work sanitation workers striked in Memphis because of the working condition and also because it caused the death of the workers. Uh, so when he went there and he had that famous speech of I have been to the mountain top, that um, which he unfortunately was assassinated the next day, uh, some used that as the start of environmental justice movement, 
And um, even though um, some others again uh, the, in 19, used the 1982, where what happened in um, Warren County, in North Carolina, where uh, we saw that um, the community were uh, trying to stop the sighting of a, a landfill, PCB landfill. PCB is a, uh, it's a persistent uh, organic pollutant that is carcinogen and um, there are other cap uh, there are other toxicity with it. If you go and look at the profile of the chemical, it's really not something you want. And um, when they uh, decided on the site to really uh, bury those uh, contaminated soil um, with PCB in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, they came up with a Afton community, which is really eight, was at the time 84% African American, and it was one of the counties that that one of the uh, municipality and cities that had the highest number of African American, and um, in uh, so in so they decided to go ahead and put it there. Uh, at the time, there were demonstration against the sighting and uh, civil rights leaders such as um, Benjamin Chavis, uh, uh, Walter Foundry, who was the U.S., uh, who was a delegate from Washington, D.C., in the U.S. House of Representatives and other leaders, of, um, uh, the Southern Christian leadership and the LACP, they were all there and uh, they laid on the street to stop the truck and um, they were arrested. Many of them were arrested. And the word environmental racism was coined in that uh, that. Uh, Warren County um, incident. And what happened after is that, first of all, it was clear-cut case of um, racism because the disposal site was only 15 feet above the water table, which is really the PCB, the usual requirement for landfill for PCB is 50 feet. So it wasn't really the science that they were trying to say this was the most suitable um, site for the landfill for PCB because it really violated the basic uh, requirement of the science, its uh, distance from the uh, water table. But it, nonetheless, it took place and they put the landfill there. They arrested the protesters. And um, of course, they had to go back again in 2000 and um, start uh, start the detoxification of the PCP landfill. And eventually, I think uh, they got federal funding. But that's and another that, story. Yeah, and that was in Warren County. Yes, that was yes. the same after that they buried the PCB. They had to revisit it in 2000 because it, because closeness to the water table that wow. 
so they had to go back yeah. and address some of the um, issues about that. So, so you started ahead. saying um, the the founding of the environmental justice movement could be traced back to W. E. Du Bois when he talked about the living conditions. Many, yes. m- uh, you know, I ha- a century or so, more than a century ago. Yes. And yes. then, and then, kind of fast forward fifty plus years, and you have Do- Dr. Martin Luther King, who talked about the working conditions um, mm-hmm. of the sanitation workers specifically. And then, so it so it addresses like living conditions, working conditions, and then another um, example would be the case in Warren County that addresses, um, you know, proximity to toxic. Uh, chemicals and and addresses living conditions near landfill. Did I did I summarize that correctly? That is correct. Okay, and so it really is a very broad definition when we when we talk about the environment. Yes, and what happened that was different in the Warren County that that is why everybody refers to Warren County mm-hmm. the, uh, as a, a watershed event in the movement is because uh, one of the people who uh, participated in the protest was Walter Fontry. and okay. uh, during that protest, uh, this civil rights leader. Uh, they were asking, is it just coincidence that they are putting this PCB landfill in an African-American community or there is more to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe this is not, is it an outlier or is it really uh, a pattern? So when um, uh, Representative Fontry went back to Washington, he, um, among other members of uh, U.S. House of Representatives, asked the General Accounting Office. That name has changed now. It's Government Accountability Office, but it's an investigating arm of U.S. Congress. They asked the, uh, them to study uh, the, to see if there is a pattern in sighting of hazardous uh, landfill. So uh, the report came back in 1983 and the report really was very telling as it um, concluded the report name was sighting of hazardous landfills and their correlation with racial and economic status of surrounding communities so when they looked at the southeast that was the area they were focusing on the east, the area of the US EPA region four, which is the eight Southeast states. And mm-hmm. when they looked at it, they found that four offsite uh, commercial hazardous waste uh, in that area uh, really were, uh, uh, you know, located in African-American community. And uh, even though African-American community were um, only making up of one-fifth, but uh, there was a disproportionate number of those landfills, four out of five were uh, located in the African-American communities. So, so 
when we when we talk about um, environmental the environmental justice and and racism, um, to what extent is it a class issue versus a race issue? Is socioeconomic status a bigger indicator, for example, um, over race when looking at the the community who is most impacted by these environmental issues? Okay. That's a very good question uh, because that has been an issue that has been um, repeatedly been raised about it's just economic. But if you look at, again, go, I, I'm going to take you back to 1987 because after that uh, GAO study, uh, which was only look, looking at the southeast of United States, then the United Church of Christ um, commissioned a nationwide studies the, to look at the relationship between toxic waste and race that mm-hmm. was published in 1987, um, and what they and that was the first nationwide study to co- correlate waste and uh, race. Um, the citing of um, toxic waste and race. And what they concluded was that um, in 1987, that 15 million Blacks, mm-hmm. 8 million Hispanics, 2 million Asian Pacific Islander, and 700,000 Native American live in communities, which means three out of five African American living communities that were. Um, close to toxic uh, waste sites. And and then, um, and if you look at also the largest, uh, uh, the nation largest hazardous waste landfill at the time that receives the waste from 45 states is located in Emil, Alabama, which is, which its population at the time was more than almost 80% African-American. And then, so in this study, they concluded that indeed race was the best indicator, even when they adjusted for income, that um, uh, that where toxic waste is going to be located. And this study, the 1987, was revisited 20 years later in 2007, and they reached the same conclusion. Actually, I think um, it was toxic waste race at 20, uh, which looked at from 1987 to 2007. The report confirms that indeed there is association between race and facility siting, um, and that evidence clearly uh, confirms the existing one. And unfortunately, it's unfortunate, but that's again, uh, pointing that even though uh, maybe uh, some people think it's economic and it's income, but race is the best still indicator. And there was a recent study uh, called Linking Toxic Outlayers to Environmental Justice Community that was done by Mary B. Collins and Ian Muniz, and um, that was published in 2016, that uh, in the uh, journal Environmental Research letter, Letters, 
that indeed said that what we have is the super polluters. Those are the polluters that are most responsible for over 90% of toxic emission. Uh, and those constitute really 5% of industrial polluters. And if you look at them, based on this study, these 5%, the most, uh, the super polluters tend to cluster in low income and minority communities. And they term this double disproportionality uh, mm. that uh, communities of color are facing. Uh, so, and there was another study that was done um, because we always have this uh, argument from people, well, the facilities were there and the community went there and lived there or chicken or egg first, but mm-hmm. who came first, people or pollution? And then that was a study that Professor Paul Mohai uh, from University of Michigan did the study and he showed that that's not true. That indeed, uh, in most cases, people were there and pollution followed rather than the other way around. And that also was published in environmental research letters. What are some of the, um, okay, so so a long extensive history of um, demonstrating that, that race is a, a bigger indicator than socioeconomic status and that in fact it, it is these communities that were there first with industry and also and other super polluters kind of coming in um you know and and taking advantage of of these of these communities um what uh what are some we know we know for instance that um covid has disproportionately um, affected communities of color. Is this also an environmental justice issue? Definitely. Uh, before we I uh, talk about that, I also wanted to um, to briefly uh, talk about another aspect uh, that I know yeah. that since seventies. Uh, if you look at it, the quality of environment has improved uh, because of the existing regulation and mm-hmm. uh, also. But what we also see in these communities are uh, the fact that existing laws are not enforced equally across. And there was a study in 1992 by the National Law Journal that uh, dubbed the uh, unequal protection because they, when they looked at the enforcement action, they concluded that uh, indeed what they saw was that um, even existing laws are not enforced uh, uh, equally. And mm-hmm. they said that uh, when they uh, when the the, the report chronicles uh, narrates the double standards and differential treatment and discrimination that is embedded in enforcement action, and then when you um, fast forward to uh, to, the, to uh, I would say uh, the. 2012, you see there is a study that was done by 
uh, Dr. Bullard and Dr. Wright, they call them the godfather of environmental justice and godmother of environmental justice. Uh, the book was published, The Wrong Complexion for Protection, where they looked at 80 years of disaster response from 1927 Mississippi River fraud to Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil in 2010. And they found out that the government responses tend to be slower um, and the government tend to respond to, to slower in the, when disaster comes in the communities of color. That, mm. That's why they put it there. And then fast forward to COVID, uh, we see that indeed, um, before even the data as as incomplete as it is today, uh, because it took um, New York Times um, Freedom of Information Act to get CDC to re to release some of that information a few days ago, uh, the wow. information that with CDC on race. Um, so even before those incomplete data emerge, any of us that were engaged within environmental justice movement would have told anybody that they, they, there will be clusters in those communities with high incident of COVID if there is exposure there. Because mm -hmm. um, if you look at uh, the level of pollution uh, we see that there was a study that Harvard just did in, uh, I think, right, in, was it in April, that they looked at just one single pollutant, and that was the particulate matter uh, 2.5. Um, and they said that if people who have been exposed to PM 2.5 tend to uh, die more um, uh, likely than people who were not exposed. From COVID? Uh, or From COVID, yes. Okay, okay. And that was a recent study to see, to look at the uh, morbidity, comorbidity factors. Mm -hmm. And they found out that people who were exposed to particulate matter tend to have higher uh, fatality. And again, um, we knew that because even though many of these communities are suffering, because PM also PM 2.5 causes a hypertension, prolonged you know, exposure to this. Um, and if you look at that, you will see that um, there are a lot of um, pre-existing condition that are brought by uh, those environmental racism. So, uh, so that's why many of us, before even data came, I think one of the first alarm was um, by ProPublica when they looked at the fatality, but still that data is incomplete because um, they are, for every pandemic, I think CDC, that's one of the guidelines they keep the, um, data on race, but on this one, it seems like it's not emerging as it should. Uh, and as I said, it was a really, it took court action to get that part of it released a few days ago by uh, CDC. So 
Uh, I think also the data is underestimated because uh, we see that uh, many people who die in their homes because they were turned away from the hospital may not make it to that statistic. So, and, and then put another layer to that. Uh, in March, President um, Trump's administration eased the enforcement and compliance with the existing uh, environmental laws and said that that could because of COVID, there is a problem for industry to meet the federal standard and comply. So we leave it at, at the level of voluntary compliance. And that's another slap in the face of EJ communities that, okay, now um, we won't even enforce the laws. And that is on top of 95 laws, uh, the regulation status that has been uh, either um, rolled, there was a rollback or stopped or different ways that was uh, in an article at uh, New York Times about it. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break, um, but stay tuned for more in a minute. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I am talking with Dr. Fatima Sheffi from Spelman College, who is an environmental justice expert. So can you talk about the importance of data collection within the context of environmental justice? Well, uh, I think that we need those kind of data. um, And and what I like is not just data collection for historical purposes, because we have the history of atrocities that are being a long history, written history of atrocities that have been committed against people of color. But what I like to see is real uh, time data where it could be used for intervention uh, that uh, would help us um, uh, direct resources and uh, 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 design policies to address the need. Um, but currently, as um, 
you can see that data even for COVID uh, fatality is not uh, complete. Um, it, it took New York Times, uh, you know, uh, New York Times had to go to court to get that data partially uh, just a few days ago to get the data based on uh, that had race in it so it is and COVID and, COVID. and CDC yes. just released it it was I think Friday that that they that wow. article came in New York Times yeah the administration loves um delivering terrible news on Fridays yeah I think that's <laughs> that's interesting on purpose yeah um so okay so and and I mean what is there something that is makes kind of data collection when taught, when thinking about environmental justice issues particularly difficult. Well, uh, one of the things that we see that uh, with COVID that uh, we have been talking about before that it was hard to see um, to 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 really have the data in your face the way we see with COVID the disproportionality of COVID mm-hmm. uh, because we know that there is a delay between exposure to chem- hazardous chemical and then the appearance of the disease. It, take, it, it generally takes uh, a few years before you get exposed to a carcinogen, non-carcinogen till you have uh, cancer. And it has been, uh, our regulatory system is really not geared to that. Uh, the only one that I recall that we established um, the correlation was uh, in a community was when uh, we look at the PCB uh, in Anniston, Alabama, that um, ATSDR, the Agency for Toxic Release and Disease Registry, which is part of the um, CDC, they did a study and they showed the correlation between what they saw in Anniston, Alabama, in the population, and then uh, exposure to PCB that uh, was there. And also we know about asbestos. Those are the very rare cases where you have, uh, you know, that kind of correlation. As such, many of these community members that are exposed to these toxic material, whether in their air or in their water, in their soil. But um, our study and the way we analyze the study doesn't show that. We have like, if you look at the uh, area between Baton Rouge and New Orleans that has the dubious name of Cancer Alley, there are clusters of cancer. But then uh, we don't have study that directly correlates that cancer with PCB or others. Why? Because we treat uh, chemicals like innocent until proven guilty. And then we also tend to treat people like canaries in mine. Uh, so, yeah. and then if you look at that, you will see that we, when we regulate the U.S. regulate the chemical, they are studied just one at a time in silo. Uh, so we really don't know uh, what is the synergistic impact of ke- chemical when they are combined with another chemical 
because as we know, we breathe the air. It's not really compartmentalized in a way that this chemical goes to this section of air, that chemical. So there is a cumulative yeah. impact, and uh, which is really the gist of what the community are saying is that we really are not exposed to just one chemical and for a short time, but it is a cumulative impact of being exposed to all these chemicals that need to be taken into consideration. So that's why we need data. We did a little bit better after the Bhopal disaster in 1984. Uh, Congress um, created the toxic release inventory which, is, which was a great tool for the community right to know because you can really mm-hmm. put your zip code and see what is being emitted in your um, community. If you put your zip code uh, in the toxic release inventory, uh, you can mm-hmm. see what is emitted in your air, water, soil, and who is the co- with, which company is doing it. And that really encouraged the industry to be careful and reduce their waste. But we have also manipulated that data because uh, we changed sometimes the threshold reporting to make it look better. Uh, and uh, that is, again, another political game. But that was a good start. And then uh, National Environmental organization like Environmental Defense Fund created a scoreboard that you could go and uh, put your zip code and find out what's going on in your. But data is critical, but data should really be put into context because without context, wrong um, conclusion can be drawn from the data. Uh, Like if you just say African-American are disproportionately Uh, dying from COVID, then if you don't put it in the context, someone may um, conclude that maybe they are biologically prone uh, to die. So so that's why data without really um, the context of data uh, is is also can be be a dangerous tool. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that actually happened. I mean, earlier, like, uh, I think it maybe in June, the U.S. Surgeon General essentially blamed um, the drinking and smoking habits of African Americans and Latinos for contributing to the severity with which they've been hit by COVID. Um, and then also kind of said, well, also the, you know, the burden of social ills is, is what he said. But I mean, yes. exactly what you said, I mean, also an example of trying to blame you know, people or the, um, and their behaviors or like, you know, for something that is so clearly, uh, <laughs> you know, but trying to make it create a scapegoat and, mm-hmm. and it was just such an awful thing, um, that, that he said, but, um, okay. So, so data collection is quite difficult in, in, with this, um, these issues in particular and, sorely lacking. Um, and is that, when, we, when you talk about the database, does that also include um, like the effects of where there are high instances of uh, like asthma, for instance, or, you know, or lead paint and the 
negative health outcomes from from exposure to lead paint, or is it mostly um, things like cancer clusters? I think um, even in asthma, asthma, as you know, is not only that disproportionately impact um, uh, the African-American children and African-American adult, but also uh, the, uh, the disproportionate death caused by is, asthma is there. So another health disparities that, um, or lead poisoning. I think there was a report that was 2012, uh, 22, 2002, uh, that the Secretary of um, Health submitted to Congress, and it was like 12 times the national average for an area in Chicago. Uh, I um, so, so again, disproportionate lead poisoning among African-American children. These are, you know, these are classic in terms of now, okay, it's established. And, but we have cancer. Yes, the, the cancer rate is higher for African-American, but again, cancer is very, uh, what do you call it, hard to pinpoint. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, why? Because again, one is the environmental factor. Uh, so, uh, so there are so many chemicals in use, and especially if you live in... Uh, St. James Parish in Louisiana or Mossel, Louisiana or uh, Pensacola or, you know, some of these communities. Uh, I, I think I saw a um, data that Deep South Center for Environmental Justice um, just did that showed that the, um, those uh, clusters have also high death rate for COVID-19. So, uh, mm-hmm. so if you overlay those, but the thing is that if we just want the data for the sake of data, it's, it's useless. We should use mm-hmm. the data to really design our intervention because um, there is no sh- shortage of data in terms of our history about racism and um what this racism did to Native Americans, to Blacks, to Latinx. What we need is real-time data. That how can we, you know, allocate resources? How can we have policies to address these issues? And that is critical. Yes, and we're going to talk about some solutions a little bit later um, in the show. But uh, before we kind of um, move on, I want to ask, um, are there impacts beyond negative health outcomes that result from these, uh, from, you know, environmental racist policies and our reality? Well, uh, environmental racism. Um, if you if you if you look at the way that environmental justice defines environment, as I was uh, trying to say in the beginning, that when mm-hmm. when we go to that holistic definition of environment, when we talk about environment not just as a uh, you know somewhere we go and have picnic, but 
more like where we work, where we live, where we play, where we study, where we, you know, what, where and how we eat, then you can see that the impact is much broader than just a sighting of the facilities. Look at the food desert food swamp uh, that uh, the access to uh, healthy uh, and fresh uh, fruit and vegetable. It's really a challenge if you look at some of these communities that um, you see that uh, there aren't that many grocery stores um, that are there. the people have to also the the issue of uh, green space is another mm-hmm. issue where people can and the minute they they really address some of these issues then uh, the development comes with the displacement or gentrification mm-hmm. so uh, so so it's really not just about environment it's about jobs it's about health it's about uh, economic well-being when uh, because a lot of time these industries go uh, to this community and they say we will bring jobs but at the end mm-hmm. of the job at the end of the day we see that very few jobs are created most of the jobs high paying jobs are really uh, for people who are who live outside of these communities and um only uh, some of the very uh, minimum, you know, low-paying jobs, una, uh, that, that one, not much of them finds its way in the community. So, And, and what about, um, like, the, the housing component? The housing component, um, you see that um, a part, most Americans uh, look at their house, as a financial investment. But if your house is located where you have, if you are in Chester in Pennsylvania, if you are in Mosul, Louisiana, if you are, I mean, your house is not going to appreciate. And so, so that is an economic loss. And a lot of times, um, you tend to also not get the response from authority. I think uh, Flint, one of the uh, things about Flint was that it really brought it to the national attention, the environmental justice. And everybody was telling me, oh my God, how could I? I said, well, Flint is not an outlier. Flint is really a norm. And uh, they were dismissed. These communities were talking about uh, their water, but they continuously, their complaints were dismissed as, oh, they, they are always complaining. They are always complaining. And, and the toll of Flint is not what happened in the last uh, uh, few years, but it is a, um, its toll will be known in a few years, because uh, we will see that all those lead that we pumped in those children's body is going to come mm. back to haunt us uh, and haunt those children's life. Mm. You have you have said that where you live 
maps your your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about what you mean? Well, where you live is really, uh, as uh, Dr. Bullard said, it's zip code should be an address, not an indicator of people's health. And what happens if it's a, one of the best predictor of your um, health, uh, economic and social being is the, your zip code. It can, uh, by your zip code, people can predict the, uh, your life expectancy, the quality of your life and your economic well-being. And that is really wow. a sad statement because zip code should remain an address. And I think that if you look at the legacy of redlining, even though it is illegal, but if you look at the housing, uh, uh, even today, I think we see the remnants of that redlining um, that yeah, have absolutely. put uh, people of um, color in a much vulnerable um, geography position than other demography. What is, um, you also, I, I've heard you use the term adaptation apartheid. Can you tell us more about that as well? Well, when we talk about climate change, okay, the climate change mm -hmm. was caused, is, ca is caused by human and uh, the greenhouse gases that human have generated. But if you look at the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the footprint of many of these communities of color, you see they have a very small footprint when it comes to uh, greenhouse gases. Yet, if you look at the vulnerability, you see that climate change exacerbates the existing vulnerabilities. What it does, it like uh, they, these communities really don't have the means to either um, uh, invest in adaptation or mitigation. And look at now with COVID. Uh, before even COVID, uh, when the heat comes, who has the air condition when the heat waves come? Wealthy people. When, when hurricane comes, you know, who stayed behind in, in uh, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans? the people who didn't have the car. And then yeah. what, that is what Desmond Tutu calls adaptation apartheid, that the, dis, um, the disparity in the ab ability to really um, have those resources to invest in mitigation, in adaptation, in resilience, we see that is missing. And uh, we saw the devastation that Hurricane Katrina uh, inflicted on uh, blacks in, in New Orleans. And um, so uh, many of them have never gotten a chance to go back because some of the properties have become so expensive because there was no policy in place to ensure that they get back to their homes. So... So that that is like what you you know you you mentioned earlier in the in the program um, 
gentrification. Yes. And that's an, that's an example of an, another issue that is caused. Yes. Um, so I want to talk a, a little bit about your personal experience um, in this space. This is something you've dedicated your life's work um, to doing. What initially drew you to the environmental justice field? Well, as a child, I loved always environment. I loved to go out and enjoy. And when I was a graduate student, uh, what happened was that the Union Carbide um, uh, disaster happened in Bhopal, India. And uh, to this day, it has... uh, the dubious extension as the worst industrial accident. However, I really um, try to not use the word um, accident because um, the company uh, audit uh, highlighted the problem that existed in the plant uh, two years before that fateful night in December 1984 that the runaway reaction is going to happen if these precautions are not um, taken and these issues are not addressed. And then when when it happened, I decided to use it for my um, as a case study for my dissertation. And when the, the deeper I looked at, the, the more I realized that the very people who really benefited the least from the plant, the Union Carbide plant, were the one that paid the highest price. To this date, the data is disputed. Uh, in the, uh, the uh, grassroots people put the debt toll as 10,000. The government put it as wow. 3,000. Uh, but the different um, document, like the registry for morgues and uh, the uh, uh, other indicator shows that the uh, grassroots people were closer to the truth. And then we really, the, the community had no idea what was being um, manufactured in that plant. So a lot of community people run toward the plant to rescue the plant because all they knew that it was manufacturing fruit medicine and how, how dangerous that could be. And uh, so they uh, went toward the uh, plant and they lay dead. Uh, And the company refused to to disclose what was in the uh, air that was the gas that was released. To this day, we don't know the composition of that gas and even as people were dying in the hospital when on or on the way to the hospital the company uh, kept saying that mic methyl isocyanide was a air uh, eye irritant and not fatal and by the time they came up uh, with the it's saying that oh it could potentially cause that um all the rich people in the city immediately when the accident happened, uh, the release happened, they fled the city. They got into their cars and left. Mm -hmm. And so it was the hospital that was there and the poor people who were running um, to the 
hospital or to the plant. Uh, and I- and that that initially, you know, sparked your um, made you really want to work on these issues. That that incident. Yes, and I've and my conclusion from that case was that environmental. Uh, degradation follows the path of least resistance, and that is what uh, I I thought was, you know. And then eventually we we that's why I was attracted to environmental racism and environmental justice movement. Can you tell us um, more, kind of, about your your work? So you, in addition to being, um, you know, like on the ground working on these issues. You're also an educator. Um, so you work at university and you, and you have taught extensively on this subject. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done over the years, both in the, in the classroom and um, in academia and, uh, you know, working with a variety of organizations and, and the government? Yes, I, I, um, I feel that this solution is in policies and implementation of those policies. So, and in order to really cha- bring change to policy, I feel like we need uh, people informed so they can push for a change in the policy. So I, um, I tried to create courses uh, so I created the course on environmental policy and politics at Spelman. And then I also had piloted course on environmental racism. Uh, but um, I also worked with my colleagues and we established environmental studies minor and environmental studies major at Spelman College. And they, they also have, a, we have a, very strong um, environmental science uh, program too. Uh, beyond that, I also try to um, go after the educators like myself because I thought that uh, that might be a good way of um, incorporating or greening of the curriculum. So uh, for uh, in 1994, 1995, and 98, 99, and and 2001, I had a summer institute, an environmental summer institute for high school and middle school teachers that were funded. uh, The first two years, I co-PI'd with my colleague, Dr. Bob Holmes at CAU, and the last three, it was me that uh, I got funding from US EPA and trained the high school and middle school teachers on the greening of the curriculum. And I took them to trips to Anniston, Alabama. At the time, that was a very active case. uh, So they could look at the uh, PCB and and where the, uh, how it is um, mapped. Uh, and then subsequently, I got a grant from UNCF and EPA and conducted workshop for a faculty at HBCUs and MI institutions where we would have like two, three days of workshop and helping them uh, green their curriculum because that is where is critical to get students 
um, to see the environment not in a very uh, narrow sense of where you go for picnic or it's about polar bear or uh, spotted <laughs> owl, but to see themselves really as as uh, this the environment is where we breed and uh, where we live and where we work. So that is what I have done. And then when I was appointed by, at the time, EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson uh, to Mm -hmm. serve on National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, that was very rewarding experience, uh, trying to really be very close to um, environmental policy. And then, of course, I was also asked by uh, CDC when they were embarking on the uh, Healthy Housing Initiative by uh, Lead Poisoning Branch. Uh, so I, um, uh, they wanted an environmental justice lens, and I was happy to work with them because every time these opportunities come, I say, okay, now it's time to just uh, move the needle, even if it is just barely, but still it moves. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, that's a perfect segue to solutions. What branch of the government is responsible for oversight or is the most responsible for oversight? And also, is it, you know, what do you, where do you see the most kind of like um, action? Is it at the state level, the local level, the federal level? Okay. I think that if you look at the agency that really is authorized to address environment, then EPA comes to mind immediately. Of course, it is other mm-hmm. issues because, as I said, environmental justice movement is really about not just um, environment, but also civil rights, about social and economic justice issues. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the uh, EPA and you will see that, first of all, to this day, we really don't have any environmental um, policy. And the only thing I know in 1992, there was a bill that was introduced by then Senator Al Gore and Representative John Lewis uh, to address environmental justice. It never really took, it, it never yeah. went anywhere. So uh, then uh, the closest national policy was the uh, executive order that was issued by President Clinton, 1-2-8-9-8, that addressed all the federal agents, I mean, 17 federal. It was later President Obama that expanded it to all federal agencies. And what it did, it really didn't create an environmental law, but it made use of two existing environmental, um, two existing laws. One, it resurrected the uh, environmental impact statement of the uh, uh, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which to this date is the most comprehensive environmental law that was ever um passed by U.S. Congress, and then the Title VI of the uh, Civil Rights Law that says any federal funding cannot be used for uh, if they are discriminating. Uh, So these Mm -hmm. are the, uh, but currently I was so encouraged because there is a, 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 a 
there is a report that just was um, published by by the uh, <coughs> I'm sorry by the House um, sel- uh, Climate uh, Select Committee that uh, was on uh, the climate uh, crisis and uh, the uh, was released on, on in sorry June 30th of this year and I'm happy to report uh, that indeed there is a part of this report that is devoted to environmental injustices in the United States, where it really talks about environmental justice as a way of, um, so uh, it, it has, I mean, just mentioning it is a big deal for us because we we have not had that. So uh, this um, solving the climate crisis report uh, that was issued by the select committee uh, of um, on environmental crisis, the pillar six of this uh, talks about environmental justice, where it talks about investing disproportionate exposed community in order to cut. Uh, pollution and advanced environmental justice. It has different uh, elements, put EJ at the center of climate and environmental policy. And uh, it's also directing EPA to consider cumulative impact that I was talking about. And um, Mm -hmm. because we have never done the cumulative impact of industrial facilities in these EJ community. And then enforcement strengthen enforcement of environmental law, which I talked about it. I said unequal protection of law. Uh, and then uh, which in 1992 of National Law Journal and the 2012 book of wrong complexion for protection. And um, so it's really uh, very, um, I'm very delighted to see that finally EJ is finding its way into uh, the law. I know that it is not there. I'm just excited because it is just proposed by the uh, House um, and it is in the form of report. But I'm hoping because there are good signs that are coming because last year in 2019, uh, I witnessed the first convening of the EJ uh, stakeholders uh, that was uh, put together by um, Chairman Raul um, Grihava and uh, uh, by uh, Representative Donald uh, McKitchen. Uh, so that was, and then they had town hall meeting, uh, two town hall meeting, virtual town hall meeting recently. So these are good signs, but policy can do magic. If you look at the Spartanburg in South Carolina and see how it was transformed from a community where um, there was really despair, boarded houses, um, uh, inundated with landfill, with, uh, and then when the community got engaged and lawmakers and leaders were willing to listen, 
uh, and then uh, an activist, uh, which was Harold Mitchell, started uh, when he noticed all this cancer in his own family. And then he digged and then he realized that they were living next to a pesticide plant and then got it to EPA and then eventually got $25,000 small grant from EPA. And from there, he built it into $200 million uh, and then transformed the community. He ran and was elected to serve in the uh, South Carolina's house. And the, the whole community was transformed from, as, the, as Mustafa Ali says, from surviving to thriving, that you have now community health center, you have green space, you have jobs, you have um, uh, healthy housing that is there. So it is possible and it is in our best interest to really invest in, in yeah. that transformation. That is such a wonderful story, and I I would love to leave it on a on a happy, optimistic note because you know I don't I don't I don't have a lot of those these days with our current state of of affairs. Um, but before we totally wrap up, I just have two quick questions for you. Um, maybe not so quick, but. Number one, what are some key resources you would recommend to our listeners who want to continue learning about this subject? Well, uh, if it, the good thing about now that if you Google, just put environmental justice and you will see a lot of information comes. And that is really a, one of the things that the environmental justice movement has done. Because if you would have done that in 80s or early 90s, barely anything. I think the first book that came out was Dumping in the Dixie by Dr. Bullard um, in 90, that was. But now you can get a lot of information on that. So uh, I would say that is a good start. And there are reports on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council that they can look. There is a report on... Flynn, there are reports on youth perspective on climate change. Uh, there are uh, many reports there that they can look and see. There is a Deep South mm-hmm. Center for Environmental Justice that uh, they um, do with the, in co- uh, collaboration with the um, with Dr. Bullard from uh, uh, Texas Southern. They do a environmental uh, climate, HBCU student climate change conference each year. Uh, so, uh, and then the website of Dr. Bullard uh, that has uh, articles about environmental justice. And what for our individual, for our listeners who want to make a contribution on the individual level, you know, through their own actions, um, beyond educating themselves, what would you recommend um, that they that they they do? I would say get engaged, write letter to your uh, representative, show that you care, because uh, when um, the Black Lives Matters echoed, I can't breathe. That resonated mm-hmm. with all the environmental justice people because we could tell you that many of these people in these communities, maybe they were not on the spotlight, but they have problem 
breeding because of what yeah. where they live. Uh, so, um, so that so that's get involved. If you can't participate, just just write a letter. Make sure that your views are heard. Educate your neighbor. Educate your friend that. Um, this is a real movement that indeed it's not, it is, as I said, it's a civil rights movement because I know that we don't traditionally cover air breeding, you know, as part of our civil rights, but we are entitled to have access to clean air to breed, to clean water mm. to drink, to live where it's not. Um, where, where it would not really make us unhealthy uh, because many of these uh, problems are really place-based uh, problem mm. that as you can see with asthma, with, uh, with lead. Uh, during the 1996 Olympic, when they restricted the uh, traffic in uh, part of Atlanta, there was 40% reduction in asthma emergency visit wow so, so wow. the data is there there is no shortage of data if you look at the data you will see that it's there it's just how can we operationalize that data into real policy mm. well that is that is we're gonna have to leave it there but i want to thank you so much for coming on the show you are um so I'm an end for, for your life's work. You are so brilliant. And I'm really lucky to have had the experience of chatting with you today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I really want to spread the word that, uh, yeah. you know, that we really need to address that. It's not just in the interest of our community, but all of us, because we all live in the same planet. We share the same planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank yeah, you for allowing me to share. One quick clarification um, to this episode before we wrap up. Um, when we were previously talking about how COVID disproportionately affects community of color, Fatima meant to reference Escambia County in Florida and not just Pensacola, Florida, which is actually located within Escambia County. And we're going to leave it there. I want to thank our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our show engineer, Jeet Paul. All episodes um, of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever you find them. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.